Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. That's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Stuart Eldon, who's a professor of political theory and geography at the University of Warwick, about Shakespearean territories. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, this is a, a fascinating book because um, it engages with your kind of much longer term concern, um, which is the, the idea of territory. But obviously, it's also a book about Shakespeare as well. And I, I guess I'm intrigued to know um, why you wrote this and, and where did the kind of the idea of um, kind of engaging these these two seemingly quite distinct areas of, of research come from? Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, it, it is a continuation of work I've done on territory before. Uh, in a number of writings, but but principally in two books, one called Terror and Territory that came out in 2009, and then The Birth of Territory in 2013, which was a historical attempt at trying to look at the relations between people, place and power, out of which our modern notion of territory emerged. And in that book, I do discuss Shakespeare briefly. There's a, a reading of uh, King Lear in, in one of the later chapters. So I had this idea that doing analysis of some literary plays, uh, literary texts, might be an interesting thing to do in that book on territory, the history of territory. Um, There's a reading of Sophocles' play Antigone. There's a reading of Beowulf and then then this one of King Lear. So there was already the sort of the germ of a project in that book that, that might be developed. And so Shakespeare seemed to me to be potentially interesting for thinking about the question of territory. King Lear is an obvious example, but there are other plays that I thought had something to say about this. And and as with many of the things I do, it grew. And so it developed. And I then thought, actually, there might be a book in this. It might not just be, you know, a section of that previous book or a single article or two somewhere else. Um, and that that might become this bigger project, which is what it actually became over several more years of work. What are we actually talking about um, when we're talking about territory? I, I think it's really important to get a, a kind of a grip on that idea um, because obviously, you know, it, it animates the book, but it also is a way of, of, I guess, you know, getting us to understand why territory matters to Shakespeare and, and I guess why Shakespeare matters to territory as well. Okay, so so a traditional understanding, if you sort of look up a dictionary definition or read a international relations textbook or a political geography textbook, the traditional way it's described is something like territory is a bounded space under the control of a group of people. Usually today that's a state. Now, that is a particular form that territory can take, certainly in specific times and places. And then what people tend to do is to say, okay, so territory, we know what territory is. It's a relatively simple concept, but it's really complicated in practice. So every territorial arrangement or conflicts over territory, disputes over where borders might be and so on. 
Now, that's obviously true that it's very complicated in practice. But what I've tried to suggest is actually it's also really complicated as a concept. And that just as political theorists have spent a lot of time exploring concepts like justice or rights or power or freedom, we need to do the same with territory. That while we might want to interrogate in terms of particular instances of territory, we should always also try and think about what do we mean by this concept of territory? Now, what I try and do in in the the previous works, and this project on Shakespeare is is a kind of continuation of that, is to say, I'm not going to try and give you a better single line definition of territory, a sort of an ahistorical territory is X, Y, and Z, and and that that's a better definition than this one I've suggested is, is the common one in textbooks. What I try to do instead is to say, Okay, we want to understand how territory has been understood and practiced in different times and in different places. These are the kinds of questions that we need to ask. These are the kind of registers that we need to interrogate. So it's political, obviously, it's geographical, but there's a whole bundle of relations going on there. There's there's economic ones, strategic, legal, technical, and so on. And what I do in this book is to develop from that previous work on territory and to say, yes, those, those registers, the, the economic, strategic, legal and technical, they're really important to understand territory. And I think Shakespeare can tell us something about each of those different uh, registers or questions. But also, I think there's things in Shakespeare that, that push me beyond what I did in, in, in previous work. So in other words, Shakespeare is not just a, a kind of an example of the previous approach. I don't just use him instrumentally to say, look, these are the things that I'd said before about territory and look how his plays help us to understand that. It, it, it's a territorial reading of Shakespeare, but it's also a Shakespearean reading of territory. And in doing that, I, I push myself a bit further than I'd done in theorising territory. That, that Shakespeare, I think you can read as a theorist of territory or that, that he tells us enough about territory and these different aspects that we can read him as a theorist. In, in that way. So I hope the book is being read by people that are interested in territory, um, that maybe know some of my previous work or other debates in, in geography or IR or other disciplines. But I also hope it's being read by Shakespeare scholars, because there is a an existing literature on sort of Shakespeare and geography. So people like John Gillies, um, Garrett Sullivan wrote a book on the drama of landscape. Kristen Paul's worked on, on supernatural environments in Shakespeare. Steve Mentz has written a book on, on Shakespeare and the ocean. And there's a load of other works on sort of literary geographies or, or the question of space in relation to Shakespeare and his, his contemporaries. So there's this work by me on territory that this book, I hope, is a, a continuation of. And, and it's also an engagement with some of that existing work on Shakespeare, um, geography and, and related questions. And it, it plays out across a, a really um, quite quite comprehensive look, actually, across a whole different range of, of Shakespeare's uh, work. And, you, you know, you, you mentioned um, kind of initial engagements with, with things like Leah. Um, and, and I guess that is a good illustrative place to start, you know, because you, you've got to play it's about all different kinds of things, you know, about madness, about families, but also it is, you know, literally about how uh, a territory will be divided up um, with, you know, questions of politics, ideas about kingdoms, um, questions about, you know, what land is, this kind of stuff. So so how is Lear a, sort of a, a, a good illustrative starting point for this engagement? Well, 
You're right. I mean, the, the famous opening scene of the play where, where Lear asks for a map and he's, he says to his, his three daughters that he's divided into his, his kingdom into these three parts and that whoever can profess their love for him in the most um, compelling way will get a share of the, the kingdom. Now, and it's partly to give to his daughters, but it's also partly to give to the, the men that they're married to. And famously, of course, Cordelia, his youngest daughter, refuses to go along with this sort of performance of, of, of declaration of love. And then she ends up being disinherited and uh, exile. And, and, and the way that the play sort of follows from this opening moment of a division of, of territory. Um, but the subplot of the kingdom, uh, uh, sorry, subplot of the play, I think is also an interesting one. This is the question about how Edmund can inherit his father's lands. So the Duke of Gloucester has got two sons, uh, Edmund and Edgar, who's the legitimate son. And Edmund conspires to get his father to disinherit the legitimate son and to, to make him capable, uh, to make him able to inherit those lands. So there's a sort of minor plot about land inheritance in the same time as the major plot is about um, succession in a kingdom or, or of the territory of the kingdom. So I try and use those two examples of territory and land and also some of the ways that the play invokes the idea of earth to talk about what I call the geopolitics of the play. So geo in the sense of the the earth, the land, the territory, rather than geopolitics in, in a way that we quite often understand it today, which is sort of global international relations or something of that nature. So I, I mentioned before that, that there was a reading of King Lear because of this opening scene with the division in the birth of territory, because it's one of the few places where Shakespeare uses the word territory in, in the singular. Is this line where, where Lear says that he will divest ourselves both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, and that this is what he wants to give to his to his daughters and their, their husbands. And, and when I wrote on Lear initially, I, I thought, you know, it would fit into the birth of territory as, as one of these examples of a way that we can think about territory. But I developed a piece and it got too big for, for the birth of territory. So there's a shorter version of it in that book, uh, but I published it as a separate article um, around the same time and thought mm, maybe there's something that I could do with some other plays to think about territory again through Shakespeare. So as I said, and that, that sort of pushed me a bit to, to expand from there. But but Leah was very much the beginning part. It's the first thing in the book I wrote. It's the main example in the, in the first substantial chapter. And that, that helped me then to think about how I might develop this project and, and start these other play readings uh, to illustrate some of the different aspects of territory that, that Leah sort of touches on perhaps, but it doesn't expand on uh, in detail. I mean, there, there are many, you know, sort of, obvious um things to, to to pick up with there but um and th- this you know it shouldn't be too much of a, of a sort of awkward segue but you know if leah we're talking about the division uh, of a kingdom which is you know a question of kind of internal uh politics um later on in the book you turn to questions of external relations and you use uh, macbeth and, and hamlet i, I guess th- th- this is is one of the chapters where uh, you get that dual engagement of, you know, uh, Shakespeare on territory, but territory on on Shakespeare, as it were. And, and I guess you offer almost the kind of rereading of Macbeth and Hamlet as plays that are not just about internal courtly concerns, but are also studies in in external relations as well. That that was very much the the intent of that chapter. In in that, I mean, with Macbeth, 
you really can't separate the play from the wider politics that, that are going on there, that Norway is the threat to the kingdom right at the beginning, that it's allied to internal traitors, the Thane of Cordor and MacDonald, that troops have come from the Western Isles, that Macbeth makes his reputation in the opening of the play uh, and it, the story gets told about the heroic deeds that he's, he's done in defending the kingdom. And then at the end of the play, um, the, the uh, overthrow of Macbeth is an attack that's launched from England with um, Malcolm. So he's the, the, the son of Duncan, who Macbeth had, had killed to become the king, and Macduff, who's also fled Scotland. So these two figures in exile, then with English supports, lead the, the movement to overthrow Macbeth. And there, the, the external relations are absolutely crucial. I mean, there's all sorts of other things in this play, as there are in all of these plays, of course. But there, the external relations are just fundamental to the play. With, without them, the, the play would almost collapse. That You have that framing of why Macbeth is this figure that might be taking over titles at the beginning of the play is because he's this heroic defender of Scotland, who, of course, then becomes the, the killer of the king. With Hamlet, on the other hand, I do think that the external relations are really crucial, and I try and provide a reading of them in the book. But I mean, I've seen productions of Hamlet where they strip all of that out, and the play, in some ways, kind of still still works without that. I mean, with Hamlet, what I do is is, is essentially I reread the play through the lens of the Fortinbras story. So Fortinbras appears in the play only only at the end uh, when he he arrives in the kingdom when just about everybody else is dead, and he takes over the the, the crown of Denmark. But Fortinbras figures in a, a backstory that's told right at the beginning of the play by Horatio, and then his army is seen in the middle of the play. And so he doesn't have much sort of stage time, and he's only mentioned a few times, but I think that story really frames the narrative of what's going on in, in Hamlet. So the story is that uh, King Hamlet, so this is the father of, of the, the title character, King Hamlet was killed by his his brother, but the story that we're told when the ghost appears on the battlements is he's wearing the armour that he wore on the day that he fought a battle with the King of Norway, who was also called Fortinbras. And the, that battle between King Hamlet and, and King Fortinbras of Norway, in which King Hamlet won and killed uh, the, the, the Norwegian king, meant that he gained land and that that land is basically the place where the Kingdom of Denmark has been established, or at least part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Hamlet, the son, the, the main character of the play, was born on the day of the battle. And so in, in the play, you have both Hamlet, the, the title character, seeking revenge over the murder of his father. But you also have Fortinbras, the young Fortinbras, seeking to regain the lands that his father lost a, a generation before. So you have this territorial story about the, the battle, about how the, the king had defeated Norway and how this then led to the land that now Fortinbras is trying to, to gain in the present moment. And there are other sort of external actors. There's a very clear sense, I think, in, in Hamlet of a wider world outside. Of uh, Hamlet is sent into exile uh, to England, for example. Laertes, who's uh, Ophelia's brother, um, he leaves the country for a while but returns in a later part of the play. Denmark, you get a sense, is, is a quite small country that's surrounded by powerful neighbours, Norway and, and Poland and England and maybe France. 
Now, I'm not alone in this kind of sort of rereading of it. Um, Margarita de Grazia wrote a book called Hamlet Without Hamlet. That's an attempt to sort of decenter the title character from from the way that we read that play. So, as I said, I'm not alone in doing this, but I thought that, that reading the play through this external relations, the territorial question, might be an interesting way to approach uh, the text. And, and I do that with Macbeth, but as I said with Macbeth, I see that that's absolutely fundamental to the to the plot line. With Hamlet, you could imagine a version of the play that didn't have that. Um, but I do think it's important. I think it sets it in a sort of wider network of connections. I think I might continue that theme of whether you'd call it, you know, alternative readings or re-readings or, or, or new readings with something that comes up later in, in, in the book. And, and you know, we're, we're only going to be able to do, uh, I guess, a, a sort of a snapshot of the, the, the rich detail that's in the book. But I, I, I was struck by um, Henry V where, you know, again, you sort of offer, of course, this is about military conflict. And, you, you know, if we think of uh, various kind of you know, cinematic in- interventions that have, depicted the, the military conflict um, you know it, it's quite quite famously um, about those issues but you want to highlight I guess the kind of questions of, of legal conflicts um, and, and again you know this is something where you bring in um, the idea of territory not just as something that is struggled over uh, by you know armies and kings wielding swords but also um, is a you know a, a, a profoundly kind of uh, it's an area of, of legal struggles as well. Right. Yeah, that, that's very much what I tried to do with, with Henry V, is that, that as you say, that the, the cinematic version, so if you think of the Kenneth Branagh one or the Laurence Olivier one, um, portray a lot of military action, even though actually in the play, that's, that's nearly all takes place off stage. What I tried to do in the, the reading of that play is to say, what would happen if we took the opening scene seriously? And the opening scene actually isn't in the quarto text of this play it's quite often cut in productions or if it is performed it's it's either um cuts are made to some of the speeches which some of the speeches are very long or that they um play it for comedy value but i wanted to say well you know what happens if we actually take this seriously so this is the question of whether henry can lay legitimate claim to the kingdom of france and it hinges on the application of a law the 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 salic law or the salic law and this is a law that says that no woman shall succeed in Salic land. Now, if Salic law applies to France, which is what France claims, then Henry can't claim the French crown because his claim to that land then would be based on matrilineal succession. If it doesn't apply to France, but it applies to a different area, which is what um, the, the English claim in the play is, that it applies to actually what's today modern-day Germany between the Sala River and the Elba River, then it can be legitimate for Henry to make a claim to the Kingdom of France because he can claim a more direct line of succession to the French crown than can the the current King of France. So it's not then simply an interpretation of the law that's at stake or tracing the family sort of genealogy in the very literal sense of genealogy of the family tree, but it's also about the spatial determination of the law. Where does the law apply? Does it apply in modern-day France or does it apply in modern day, or at the time it would have been the Holy Roman Empire, but the, the, the Germanic kingdoms to the east? And the, the case that's made is a really torturous 
long speech, as I said, usually played for kind of comedy value, because after this really complicated um, story, then it said, and this is, of course, as clear as the summer's sun, or it's cut, as I said. Um, Even editors of the play, who are usually people that are normally advocates for how wonderful a play is, um, talk about how it's kind of unrivaled for tedium throughout Shakespeare's works, or, you know, this kind of description of it. And Henry famously cuts through this when it comes, this is now in the second scene. May I with right and conscience make this claim? He wants a straight yes or no answer. Is he allowed to make a claim to the kingdom of France or would this be illegitimate? But I wanted to take this seriously and to think about this as a a legal case for why he might be able to claim a kingdom. And part of the reason I wanted to take it seriously is because why are people advising him that this would be legitimate? And the reason is that it's the church that's advising him. So it's the Archbishop of Canterbury who's making the most uh, forceful claim for why Henry can succeed in France. He's advocating war in France. And the reason is, if Henry doesn't gain the land in France, he's going to come after the church and the church's possession of land. And so that's the opening scene of the play, is the, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Eli talking about the danger of a bill that's being passed that's in the process of being passed, that would take away some of the church's land and that this would be such a a damage to the church's kind of worldly wealth um, that they want to find a way to divert Henry's interest into something else. So they help build this case for why Henry can legitimately claim the kingdom of France. So it it goes into some, some issues that I've been interested in elsewhere about the relation between the church and the state the church's possession of what they call temporal lands. These are ones that the church owns as a landowner rather than because it is simply the church itself, but it's the worldly wealth of the church that might be taxed by the kingdom. And in a sense, what what I'm doing is thinking about what we now call the just war tradition, that just war is concerned with two main questions of the justification for war and then just action in war what is legitimate to do in a, in a wartime. And quite a lot of attention in this play has been about whether Henry and the English forces effectively commit war crimes by the way that they're, they're attacking civilian areas or that they put prisoners to death and, and so on. And that's certainly an issue that's going on in the play, and that's very clearly a legal question. But there's also this question of the, the justification to go to war in the first place, which is the one I'm most interested in, because it's so much about this relation between church and king, the question of land, whether the king would take the church's lands that he could then tax to use to raise revenue and so on. And this question of the applicability of law, it's not just what the law is, but where does the law apply? So a geographical question. So that's what I try and do in the the reading of Henry V to to open up a different sort of set of questions in that play. You're pointing there to to this, you know, really expanded and expansive uh, view of territory, um, you know, moving um, almost kind of, you know, from the beginning through uh, the later chapters of the book from a more, you know, kind of traditional set of concerns about uh, kingdoms and, um, you know, external relations, wars, questions of uh, power and control and and who is the sovereign and these kind of things to, to I guess, uh, a more... Uh, I suppose, kind of nuanced version of territory, which begins to ask, well, how is it constructed? Um, you know, how does territory kind of come into being and what sort of uh, devices, what kind of 
um, measurements, what kind of calculations are, are needed. Uh, and I, I guess that is um, both, you know, something that you've been thinking about for a long, a long time, but also you try and tease out across a range of different uh, Shakespeare plays. And, and I guess the question becomes, you know, how is kind of calculation important to Shakespeare and how is um, calculation important to territory as well? Okay. That, that is certainly a theme I've tried to, to develop in previous work, this territory and technology question. And, and I've, I've used Foucault's notion of a, a political technology as a way to try and understand territory. In that territory is not just land or terrain, but it's the ways that that land is measured or counted or uh, acquires economic value or, or, and the way that, that terrain is surveyed and mapped and controlled and so on. And, and Shakespeare's writing at this interesting moment where there is a, a real development of some of the, the techniques that are needed for large-scale cartographic projects, land surveying and so on. There's developments in geometry and the applied versions of this in, in surveying and cartography and so on. Um, there are also the developments in population census. Um, the development of statistics is happening around this time navigation techniques are developing and and one interesting thing that happens is that the way that navigation technologies at sea are then used subsequently as a mechanism of land measurement through through land surveying and so there's all sorts of examples in Shakespeare's plays of language that's indebted to some of these developments that are going on and other people have, have worked on this so Adam Max Cohen wrote a book called Shakespeare and Technology that's very good on picking up on all of these different questions in, in Shakespeare's language and, and exploring what, what some of these might mean. And there's a whole range of plays where, where this sort of set of questions come up. So, so The Merchant of Venice is an obviously sort of calculative play. Um, the money lending, the trade, the commerce, the pound of flesh famously, of course. Uh, but a whole load of language in the play about measure, balance, exchange, counting, weighing, and so on. Measure for measure, you know, from the title down it, it is around a lot of these questions, but particularly also in terms of the question of government is, is crucial to that play. There is a land surveyor who makes a, a brief appearance in, in Henry VIII. Um, military technologies appear in, in several of the plays as well. But in the, the chapter in the book, the, the main example I use and, and, and discuss is uh, Henry IV Part One, because, again, it directly relates to land. And it's the other famous map scene in Shakespeare. So there's the opening scene of King Lear, which is, is well known. But this is the other one where a, a map isn't just mentioned in passing, but, it, but it's absolutely crucial to the, the, the action of the scene. And this is because there's three people seeking to overthrow King Henry of, of England, Hotspur, Glendower and Mortimer. And their plan is that they'll divide up the kingdom between them after they've defeated Henry. But they, they're agreeing on the land division or the territory division before that 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 important battle. And what they do is they, they decide to use rivers as the boundary lines of the, the shares of the kingdom that, that each of them will, will, will take. And the, that the, the River Severn um, will divide off Wales from England and then Glendower can claim this. And the River Trent will mark off the, the boundary between southern England and, and northern England, so the area that will be taken by Mortimer or by Hotspur. And they're about to agree this and that they'll they'll go away with this as a sort of sealed agreement and then collectively they'll try and defeat Henry. 
except the Hotspur says, hang on a moment, I'm, I'm not happy with this because he thinks that his share of the, the land or the territory isn't actually fair because the river's running in the wrong direction. So he makes this claim that the, the way the river is flowing, it comes, he says, comes me cranking in and cuts me from the best of all my land. That if the river ran in a different direction, he would think it would be a more equitable distribution. And he says, well, what we need to do is we need to dam the river and we need to have it run in a different channel that will make a fairer distribution of land. So, you know, instead of drawing the map in a different way, using a different river or, or just drawing a line onto to the map, this proposal to change the course of a river in order that the land could be divided more equitably. So I, I use this as, it, it, you know, it hinges on this, the idea that they have a, an accurate enough map, which is probably anachronistic in terms of it would work in Shakespeare's time, but not in the, the, the time of the, the play's action itself. But it, it seemed to me to be interesting because it shows the kind of the, the physical materiality of the landscape and the, the way that rivers and other features of the physical geography are significant and the way that these interact with the political geography, a division of the land between these three conspirators. So when I thought about, you know, how will I try to illustrate this this uh, technological theme in, in Shakespeare, that was the play that I thought was the richest because it's so explicit about this interrelation of these uh, techniques with a physical landscape as, as well as the dividing up of land between people that want to overthrow a king. In, in that same vein of the, you know, kind of expansive and, and expanded view of, of territory, you, you look at um, territory and, and bodies and, and you use Coriolanus um, as your example. And, and obviously it starts with a really famous, um, I suppose, you know, metaphor of, of how uh, Rome works and, you know, the various kind of um, elements of the body politic, which, which are literally given body parts, you know, bellies and toes and, and things like this. And, and I'm interested in, I guess, why bodies matter when we understand territory, um, alongside the question of, you know, why Coriolanus is, is an interesting um, illustration. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've been sort of criticised for before in my work on territory is that the, the spaces were kind of emptied out in a sense, that they were um, not really inhabited by by people. And so the corporeal in relation to territory was something that I, I was aware that I hadn't given as much attention as I, as I should have done, along with the geophysical, which I was just talking about, was the theme I perhaps neglected in some of the previous work. But the, but the bodies, I thought, was an interesting theme to explore, the relation of, as you say, the, the body politic and that famous uh, fable, fable of the body or the, the feeding and the distribution through the body parts that, that, that's talked about in, in that opening or in that early scene. But Coriolanus is also, Shakespeare's plays, is probably the most striking in terms of the body imagery that runs through the play. You could probably make that case for Troilus and Cressida as well. But Coriolanus, I think, in, in a very political register, is, is explicit in terms of the body parts that are mentioned. Uh, the bodies of figures are important. So there's a, a later scene when Coriolanus, the, the war hero, is supposed to display his body and display the wounds on his body that he has received in Rome's defence. And this is part of a, a sort of a political election process. And he refuses to, to go along with this uh, performance, this display of his body and the, the physical 
memory in, in his body of these wounds that he has received on Rome's behalf. Um, there's a lot of language in the play, and it shares this too with, with Troilus and Cressida, about disease and bodily affliction and questions of contagion and so on. So I was interested in how these play out in the language of the play, how these relate to the, the physical body of Coriolanus and some of the other figures in the play. But it, there's also this question of the, the kind of the body of Rome, its territory and the threat to it by an outside force, the, the Volscaeans that Rome is in dispute with at this time. So the body of the state is, is important, uh, the political body of the polity itself, what's inside the body, what's outside the body, what kind of wars might need to be fought externally in order to keep it safe, the the health of the polity, so the, the, the corporeal metaphor in, in playing out of the, the healthy body politic or the diseased body politic, and then what might need to be cut out from it. Um, and Coriolanus is this this fascinating, really problematic but fascinating figure who's who's both been the defender of Rome, the valiant hero, but then because of his refusal to go along with the the political expectations, ends up being exiled from Rome, and he has this this moment when he he leaves Rome and he wanders outside of the boundaries of Rome and he goes into the enemy camp in a, in a disguised way and joins with them to lead an attack on Rome itself. So the the defender of the body politic becomes then its greatest threat to it. And he's eventually persuaded against attacking Rome by the involvement of his mother, who also uses language of of the body and the, um, she says at one point, angers my meat, I'll supper for myself. This incredible sort of self-consuming sense of of the bodies and their appetites and their afflictions and and so on that comes in the play now as with many of Shakespeare's plays it's somewhat anachronistic in terms of its historical reading you know the the time that Coriolanus lived and how Rome and its neighbours would have understood territorial relations it's slightly anachronistic in that but it's fascinating I think in giving a sense of how in the early 17th century, when the play was written, Shakespeare would see these things through through the, the lenses of his present. Um, and it starts to help us think about these questions at, at that moment. So I was interested in this, you know, the bodies in places, places seeming like their bodies, in places embodied. Um, I try and kind of gently push this line, that, you know, in a sense, this gives us the biopolitics of territory rather than just the geopolitics of territory, which is often the, the assumed thing. So I was really trying to think about how the body and the territory interrelated in, in that play. And as I said, you, I could have done this also potentially with uh, Troilus and Cressida, which I don't really discuss in the book. I've done a little bit of work on it since I wrote the book. But Coriolanus was, is, is so obviously a political play, and it spoke to these questions that I was interested in, and the body was the theme I thought was worth exploring. There. I mean, again, I'm not alone. I mean, there's a lot of literature about the body in Coriolanus, but perhaps I was able to do something by relating the body to territory in, in Coriolanus. It's always a cliche with, with these podcasts when I say something like, you know, well, we've we've barely kind of scratched the surface of the book um, and there's loads more kind of going on. But, but you know, we really haven't <laughs> kind of covered um, the, the sort of the richness of the book and, and you know, the, the, the sheer range of of different ideas and, and different uh, works of Shakespeare that are, that are in there. But I, I guess as a kind of concluding comment, I'm, I'm interested in um, where the book 
sort of takes you or, or where you go next with the book? You, you know, you mentioned you've done a little bit more work and, and it sort of struck me that not, this was a, a sort of a definitive statement or, or anything like that, but um, I, I was intrigued as to where, you know, you, you could kind of push a Shakespearean territories project um, or if you feel to an extent, you know, you'd kind of um, settled that uh, relationship, you know, kind of uh, scratch, scratch that itch as it were, um, and, and you're going to be moving on to, uh, to very different things next. I, I suppose it's a bit of both. Um, I think I will continue doing things on Shakespeare. Um, I don't know whether there'll be another book, but there have been a few papers, as I said, since I finished this book. So this book was finished in, in 2017. Um, it took a while to come out and, and has been out for a little while as well. Um, I have got some other pieces which have been sort of around Shakespeare and Foucault, really, um, that Foucault is somebody who reads Shakespeare throughout his career. There's there's obviously the connection to the issue of madness that's there in the history of madness, but it's also there in some of his Collège de France lecture courses where he's talking about political ceremony in relation to Shakespeare. So I have a couple of pieces that are published, one on Foucault, Shakespeare and Madness, and one on Foucault, Shakespeare and Ceremony, that, that develops some of those. And that's with the, the sort of the most explicit places where Foucault talks about Shakespeare, where I, I use those, but I also use the Shakespeare plays to try and think about those kinds of questions. Because I've been doing this work on Foucault, and you know we've discussed this in two previous episodes of this podcast, uh, the Foucault work, I earlier this year, I was able to read Foucault's school books. So when he was a pupil at school in the 1940s, and there's loads of notes on Shakespeare because he was taking English and they taught Shakespeare's plays. So there might be a paper to write on Foucault's earliest readings of Shakespeare. Um, but I've also written a couple of pieces that, that are not published that are using some of the concepts in Foucault and some of Shakespeare's plays to think about other issues. So I've got a piece on the question of the oath, the, the promise, um, th- as it features in Shakespeare's plays, but then how it connects to some of the things that Foucault is interested in. And then I've got a piece on Foucault, Shakespeare and Contagion, which is actually mainly a reading of Troilus and Cressida. And I, I wrote this piece a couple of years ago and gave it at a conference on Foucault and Shakespeare and had this idea that maybe there'd be this book on Foucault and Shakespeare. And I put it aside thinking, well, I won't publish all these pieces. I'll I'll keep some back for if I publish a book. And now, of course, in the the current moment, you know, if I wrote a piece on, or if I tried to publish a piece on Foucault, Shakespeare and Contagion, it would look like, oh, he's just, you know, making the most of the pandemic in terms of whether in his... So I'm hesitant again to, you know, what should I do with this this piece? But I was fascinated by, I mean, Troilus and Cressida is another absolutely fascinating play that I didn't know very well until I really started working on the, the idea and that it's a it's a play with again lots of bodies lots of animal imagery but loads and loads of stuff about disease and and i was interested and so i sort of used the play and um a couple of other plays but mainly Troilus and cressida to sort of pose this question of a shift in medicine which is happening around this time in in, in shakespeare would have been aware of because of family members who were who were doctors and other connections that he would have had of this shift between Galenic medicine to Paracelsus and the, the new ideas about medicine 
And I do it around this idea of contagion, about how close you need to be, how proximate you need to be for a disease to pass from one to another. And the the, the play has got a lot of stuff about venereal disease, which is a very obvious bodily physical contact. But there are other questions about how diseases spread and how people understood diseases spreading. So that's a, a sort of long detour there. But these have been various talks I've given on on Shakespeare, as I said, in, in connection to Foucault or at a conference on Ernst Kantorowicz um, and Shakespeare. So they're, they're different readings of Shakespeare, but they're not particularly around the question of territory or even geography. I mean, I have a piece on Shakespeare in landscape, which again isn't published, but then I don't think there's more for me to do on Shakespeare in territory, but there might be some more for me to do around Shakespeare, perhaps with different plays and often in, in conversation with the other work that I've been doing, which is this sort of, you know, it's a multi-volume study of Foucault, um, an intellectual history of Foucault's career. And that and some of my other theoretical interests maybe connects to Shakespeare in some interesting ways, I hope. So that may be where I go with this next. 